0: Good morning. We are in Matthew chapter 6 again. Last week our goal was to get through verses 1 through 4 and we made it through verse 1. And this week we, Lord willing, are going to revisit a little bit um, verse 1 and then move into verses 2 through 4. Let's, before we start though, have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we consider your text in Matthew chapter 6. pray that you will open our eyes to see, that you will give us the faith to believe, and that you will transform our hearts to be, to be worshipers and lovers of the one who first loved us. So glorify yourself in our study this morning. Help me to speak clearly, to speak accurately and correctly, and Lord, I pray that you will take the truth and implant it in each one of our lives. In your name I pray, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses one and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. That is our text for this morning. Last week we were in verse 1, and we stayed in verse 1, and was trying to connect verse 1 to chapter 5, and all the way back to chapter 4, verse 17. If you weren't here last week, it's very important that you get chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, So I'd encourage you, if you weren't here last week, or if those of you who are online, if you weren't tuned in last week, I would really strongly encourage you all to listen to that message, because it's very foundational. We are going to briefly cover verse 1, just to get everybody up to speed, but not enough to cover what we covered last week. Uh, It is important that you see the context and the flow of the text in order to really get what's really going on. Um, But I want to remind you, firstly, that we are, as we've said every every week so far, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to remind you that. So we're right smack dab in the middle, the second chapter of three chapters on the study on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we are discovering as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount is that up to this point in time, seemingly the modern understanding of, our, of the Sermon on the Mount or the interpretation of how do we handle the Sermon on the Mount, I would argue has been incorrect. And, uh, and the reason why it's been incorrect just by way of reminder is because Chapter 4, verse 17 has not been taken into account as the the interpretive clue or key to unlock the understanding of 5 through 7. We must see the statement made in 4.17 as the actual key to unlock the understanding. Without that key, we are going to wander in the wrong direction. So again, 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from 4.17 onward, he's going to preach a message of repentance. And why should the people repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's 4.17. It's very clear. And when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's talking about himself being the Messiah, the Redeemer, who is going to be crucified in a few short years and pay the penalty for sin, ushering in effectively the the rulership of the king of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why chapter 28 of Matthew uh, concludes by saying what? All authority or all power has been been given unto me. Do you recognize that's kingship terminologies? The coronation, as it were, of the King? There's a whole vast swath of Christianity that believes that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is yet a future thing. And it's not a present thing. But the point of the text of Matthew is that it's not merely a future thing. It is a future thing. The kingdom of heaven will reach its ultimate culmination in the eternal state. But the kingdom of heaven is today. And Christ is on the throne as the king today. And it's important we see this in the very beginning of Matthew. It starts out with, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. End of Matthew, the king is on the throne. Does that make sense? Very important we see that connection. It's in light of 4.17 that we must look at the first sermon preached, at least recorded to be preached, after 417 is said, because it says he began to preach repentance. So, our understanding primarily of chapter 5 through 7, therefore, is that 5 through 7 is explaining to the hearer what they need to repent of. Now, I'm not going to wander through 5 again, we're just going to leave that lay except to say. That as we went through chapter five, we mentioned last week especially that there are clumps of verses in chapter five. For example, chapter five, verse one through through twelve is one major clump. Thirteen and fourteen and fifteen and sixteen are, are, are transition verses into the next clump, next section. In section one. Verse, chapter 5, verses 1-12, through 12, it's very clearly not this is what you need to be or do. Quite to the contrary, it is time to be blessed if you are this. And of course, nobody is to be blessed because they're not that. And if they're not blessed, according to Deuteronomy, then they must be recipients of the curse. That is very important. That, that, that's what's going on here in chapter 5. And then verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 48 continues that thought, slightly modified, but it's in a courtroom scene. And Jesus just keeps saying again and again, You've heard it was said of old, this, but I tell you, as the judge and the lawgiver, therefore the only correct interpreter of the law, this is what the law means, ergo, you misunderstood, therefore. You're cursed once again. Same thing going on, although different approaches in verses 1 through 12, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. That brings us to chapter 6. And as I said last week, we have a transitional point. The the emphasis or the flow of the text changes subtly again as it changed from 1 through 12, and then. 17 to the end of the chapter there was a change in between those subtly we have another subtle shift in chapter 6 and following No longer do you see Jesus presenting himself primarily as judge and lawgiver Where he was in 8 and 17 to the end of the chapter You don't see him presenting himself as he presented in verses 1 through 12 as being the one who came to bless people but only if they qualify to be blessed. Instead, you find Jesus functioning as a teacher who is warning, yes, He's warning people, but He's also instructing. So there's a shift that takes place in chapter 6. What's the point of the shift? And it's important that we recognize the shift because if we don't pick up and recognize the shift, then we're going to continue merely going on the same way we were going. And so we will have five correctly, and then six we will misinterpret again. And so we've got to be really careful. Jesus' techniques here are really interesting. How he communicates, it's very important we follow his purpose. His purpose overall, overall and overarching is what again? Repent, that never changes, all the way through the end of chapter 7. It does not change. He's calling to repentance. However, in chapter 6, the shift is such that the repentance emphasis is there, and front and foremost. And we're going to see this as we work our way through this. It is front and foremost, but in chapter 6, there begins to become a shift in that he is now speaking to what we actually thought he was speaking towards in chapter 5 what most people think he was speaking into in chapter 5, which he wasn't at all speaking into, telling you how you need to live or who you need to be or what you need to do. In chapter 6, the primary call is still to repentance because nobody will measure up to anything you see in chapter 6 either. Does that make sense so far? No one will measure up, and so the call is to repentance. However, Jesus is speaking in such a way also and secondarily that maybe, just maybe, there may be some people who will hear chapter 5 and what? Repent. And so now it's this combination, although at the same time, it's always repent as first and foremost. Because no one will measure up to any of these things that are said. But secondarily, in case someone's repenting, now it it becomes more of a teaching in ongoing repentance. So it's still primary because even as believers, we are to be what? Repenting. Because we don't measure up, do we? Our dependence is not upon our righteousness. It's dependent upon His righteousness. Philippians chapter 3. An alien righteousness. One that is not our own. That is our only hope ever but there is a shift that takes place here and you recognize it because he the warning is, is starting off in verse one that we saw last week beware right he's cautioning the hearer to be careful and then he's going to instruct as well as the clear call is to repent because when we look at chapter six one through four we're going to say yeah that's me yep that's me yep every time <laughs> just about every time my motives are corrupt and corrupted and continue to be so. So he starts out, I just wanted to share that with you. So we're going, to, we're going to try to handle chapter 6, 1 through 4 as well as the rest of chapter 6. We're going to try to handle it from a perspective of this is, the, this is the call to repentance primarily and then secondarily as a call to repentance then this is an appropriate response to the one who does what? Who forgives. If we confess our sins, What? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in this case, in chapter 6, we have the scenario where the call, the primary call is to repent, but in repentance, there is an appropriate repentant response to have. See, the answer is not, oh, that's bad, that's me, yeah, Ugh, I got to do better, which is where we go all the time, isn't it? No, the call is to repent. We must not ignore. That's the primary call to repent. And it's only when we repent that what is said in chapter 6, every single section of chapter 6, is appropriate and good. It's an appropriate response in acknowledging the forgiveness that a loving, merciful God gives us when we confess our sins. So with that in mind, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. Again, we already talked about this, but I want you to notice, uh, just by way of reminder, beware of practice, and the reason why he says beware is why? Remember from last week? Why does he say beware here? Beware of something. Watch out for something. Why does he say that? Because we're not. Because we live our lives unaware. We, we we live life and we enter into situations and circumstances, we make decisions, we live life unaware. And Jesus says, beware. And by the way, if you if you do begin to become aware, that's when you discover what? I haven't been aware. That's what happens. When we start to hear what Jesus says in one through four and start to beware, we'll discover we will lived our lives unaware. And that's the call to repentance. And so Jesus says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them." He tells us in verse one, as I said before, this is going to apply to this section, the next section, and the third section all the way through verse 18. There's three examples He's going to give, two through four, five through 15, and then 16 through 18. That's the three things he's going to tell us to be aware of with regard to our own righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness. These are the three areas he's going to say as examples of where we need to be careful, that all people need to be careful, and the implication being no one is careful, and therefore a universal call to repentance. And the statement is beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. That's the statement. Practicing your righteousness before the people. Now, this isn't the first time that practicing your righteousness has shown up in the text or in this message. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, there it is, your righteousness, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says in 520, unless your righteousness is better than the ones who are the most perfect on the planet, you're never going to what? Enter the kingdom, King of Heaven, right? The kingdom of Heaven. That takes us back to six one. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So we have the statement in five twenty, unless your righteousness is basically he's describing perfect perfection, absolute perfection. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in six one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And this is the great dilemma, isn't it? The great dilemma is that is exactly what we do. Everyone does, at all times. We practice our righteousness. We do what we do. Why? To be noticed. To be identified as a righteous person. That's why. It, it, it's, it's, it's so common, it's universal. Let me just exhi- give you Exhibit A, okay? This is just off the top of my head. Exhibit A for us today. I, I mean, literally, it's just on top of my head this moment. We're here at church this morning. We're worshiping God, right? We're here this morning, we love God, right? And then we go to work day by day. We interact with our neighbors day by day. We see the people at the gas station day by day and the grocery store. And everywhere else. There's people we recreate with and everything. Neighbors, friends, relatives. And we never tell about Jesus. We say we love Jesus. Where? Church. Isn't that interesting? We say we love Jesus where we can be noticed, and it's accepted, right? Isn't that right? I mean, can I just ask you real quick, has anybody condemned you at at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church for saying you love Jesus? Anybody condemned you? Said, would you stop loving Jesus? That ever happened here? Okay, never happened here. Will that happen out in the world? You bet it will. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You see, practicing righteousness out in the world is not going to produce the product you want, is it? It's not going to yield, is it? Because when we want to be noticed by men, we want to be noticed so that we can be flogged, so we can be stoned, so that we can be thrown in prison, so that we can be beaten, so we can be thrown out of cities, so we can be bitten by snakes, so we can be shipwrecked. You recognize who I'm talking about, Right? Paul, I mean, none of that's really good, is it? None of that's good. None of that's comfortable. None of that's, I'm not saying good in a moral standpoint, I'm just saying comfortable or enjoyable. And so there's no yield, is what I'm talking about. There's no yield to let the world see your righteousness in that category, is there? And so what happens? We don't show it, do we? But there's yield to show it here, isn't there? Right? I mean, there obviously is. I mean, a number of years, a couple of years, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But most of you are like, huh? You know it is. There's a yield. There's, there, there, you come to church, and there is a expected identifier. Came to church, your righteousness is showing. Pray a prayer. In church, your righteousness is showing. You say amen at an appropriate part. Well, we don't do that here, of course, but you know. And your righteousness is showing. And it's accepted, isn't it? But it doesn't show out there. Isn't that weird? You know why? And Jesus just using this as an example. You know why? Because there's no yield out there. There's no benefit. But in here, there is. If you really think about it, we know that's, I hope, now starting to sound a little universal, isn't it? It's common. Where I'm going to get a benefit, I'm going to get recognized, and here's the key word positively, then I feel pretty comfortable. Showing my righteousness. Don't I? Right? Danger of persecution? Everything changes. I could lose my job? Everything changes. My friends will hate me and I'll lose my friends? Everything changes. Why? Because I'm only going to show my righteousness when? When it Benefits me. That is the very se- definition of self righteousness. The very definition of self righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning us about. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen, and you can put this word in there, in order to be seen <coughs> positively by them. Positively. In order to receive recognition by them. Let me use a different example. It is really easy, isn't it? If you believe in Jesus, I'm going to use Ken as an example. It's really easy if Ken and I get together and we start talking about Jesus and we're in agreement. And we're having a great conversation and we're hanging out in truth, talking about Jesus. And it's great, right? And I'm I'm sitting there listening to Ken. I'm like, wow, he knows a lot. He's really grown. And Ken's listening to me saying, my goodness, he knows a lot. He's really grown in his understanding of the scriptures too. Right? And he's recognizing my what? My righteousness. Right? My righteousness. But it, everything changes now when... Ken and I have a disagreement. And so, what do I do? I don't talk about it anymore. I don't talk to Ken about that disagreement theologically anymore. Don't do that. He doesn't do it. Why? Because there's no yield. Because if we talk about it, I disagree with him. What's he going to think of me? I may lose a friend. What's he going to think of me? Is that, again, not the very definition of self-righteousness? Who am I loving at that point? Myself. Who do I care about at that point? Myself. Do I care about Ken? No, because if he's wrong theologically, and I don't address that and try to help him through that, I'm just telling him I don't care if you are living in theological error. You go right ahead. And so we'll just talk about things that we agree on, and then you're going to think really great of me. And then slowly but surely, what begins to happen in in our relationship? It gets narrower and narrower as we boil it down to the lowest common denominator. And after a while, Christ is nowhere, isn't he? And we're talking about woodworking or something like that. Isn't that what happens? happens all the time. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people so that you gain approval from them. That's the idea. Beware of practicing self-righteousness. And then he warns, he continues the warning, for then you will have what? No reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's a scary statement. That's a really, we mentioned it last week. That in chapter five it talks about about that they will give glory to God because of my righteousness, right? The result because of my good works, it says in chapter five, they will give glory to God. In this case, if I'm if I'm doing it for my own self righteousness to receive recognition from other people, who gets the glory? I do. Who gets the honor? I do. You have if that's you, and it's all of us. Jesus says you have received your reward in full. That's what he's saying. You've received your reward in full. What you got is all you're going to get. You will get nothing else. So I hope you value that reward that Ken is giving you right now. because That's all you're getting. And the point is, When he says, and we must not water it down, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He is saying, if there's no reward, there's only, because reward is blessing, if there's no reward, going back to chapter 5, there is only curse, which means you're condemned and you will be in hell for eternity. Do you recognize the need for repentance? It's pretty clear. Too often people say, well, this reward here that he's talking about is just the, the crown, the, 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 the jewels in your crown. No, it's not. When it says no, even laying aside the debate about the whole um, uh, uh, jewels in the crown for a second, if there's no reward, that means there's not even a crown. That means there's not even an entrance to the place. Because going to heaven is the reward, being with Jesus is the reward, is it not? If there's no reward, then there must only be judgment. And it's in light of that that he comes down to verse 2. And in verse 2 and following, he uses this as the first illustration. And it's about giving financially. He says in verse 2, thus, connecting verse 1 to verse 2, as the first point of his major statement in verse 1. Thus, when you give to the needy, I want you to notice, stop on that for a second. Do you notice that he didn't say if? He said when. And the assumption is, especially in, in Jewish culture and in the law, the idea of caring for the needy is part of the law. If so, certainly if you're not fulfilling that minor part of the law, then you're you're in trouble already. And it says no one perfectly keeps that, even that part of the law, right? There's no perfect keeping of that law either, is there? I always chuckle when I hear a Christian say, Well, you know, I care for the needy. Oh, you really? How about absolute perfection? Because that's God's standard. Absolute perfection. I can't compare myself to others, right? That's condemnation. I can't say, Well, I give more than, than, than Nikki does to the poor, therefore I'm doing okay. Condemned. Because why is Nikki my standard? Not, not that Nikki doesn't give to the poor. I don't know. But the point is, when did Nikki become my standard? You know why I chose Nikki? Because I think she gives less than I do. So I'm not saying that, but the point is that oftentimes we are not people. In fact, never are we people who keep the law perfectly, do we? So it's interesting that Jesus starts it off by saying, when you give to the poor, knowing that everyone who's hearing most times does what? Doesn't give to the poor or to use another illustration from the Scriptures, from the Gospels, most people are like the Samaritan or like the priest who goes on the other side of the road. The priest who goes to the other side of the road. Is that not correct? And even if occasionally we are the guy who really brings the person in and puts them into a hotel and pays their, pay their, pays their, their costs, that's the anomaly that's not the rule. We don't keep it perfectly, do we? Condemned. But when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. We're just going to stop right there for a second. This is an interesting statement Jesus makes. In first reading, you can look at it and say, seriously? They actually did that? They actually, when they gave to the needy in the streets and in the synagogue, they blew a trumpet? Really? And the answer is, no, they didn't. There's nothing recorded ever in history, in Jewish history, that they did. There is nothing recorded that the people, even the the most prideful people, the scribes and Pharisees, those are the people that Jesus picks on more than anybody else, that they ever blew a trumpet to signify that they were giving to the needy. Which could cause us to say, what is this all about? Because I say this to say, it's really easy to look at the text in verse 2 and say, well, that's not me, which we saw in chapter 5, right? That's not me. That's not me. And it turns out it was us. Well, it's the same thing going on in here. Jesus gets up in front of the people, and he says, again, when you give to the needy, he sound no trumpet before you. And then he says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue in the streets. But there's, they didn't. What's Jesus talking about? They didn't do this. They didn't blow trumpets. Now, theologians over over the centuries have debated what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Blowing trumpets to give to the needy. And it's funny to read some of the the ideas that they came up with. And I'm not even going to go through them because they don't make any sense at all trying to dance around, trying to figure out what, and, and somehow give Jesus a pass in saying this thing that they didn't do. And so some theologians have actually gotten close as possible, maybe, I, I think get even closer, to the idea of what Jesus is talking about. And it's really just a sarcastic statement. A funny, sarcastic statement. What is Jesus is really, in a, in a basic way, he's saying this, when you give to the needy, don't toot your own horn! That's what he's talking about. But it's more significant even than that. Because when he says here, don't be like the hypocrites who blow their own horns, who blow horns to draw attention to themselves in their giving to the needy so that they are identified and seen in their self-righteousness, what he's talking about is something even grosser than that. Have you just by way of illustration, have you ever been sitting on uh, in the city somewhere, and you're reading a book, and you're really enthralled with the book, and you're just really caught up in it, and all of a sudden a car pulls up in front of you, and the stereo is blasting as loud as it can, and it's got some sort of big woofer that fills up the entire back seat of the car, and the whole car is shaken almost because of the loud music. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that? And you're focused on your book, right? But that guy is demanding that you look at him. that makes sense? He's demanding that you recognize him. He's demanding that you look at him and be in awe of him. Correct? That's why he does it. I said guy on purpose because girls don't do that. But guys do. Don't know why, but they do. But here's one of the problems. The idea here when he talks about do not be like someone who uh, plays a trumpet, play no trumpet, he's not just talking about trumpeting a sound. The idea, the intent, is that the sound that is being played by the trumpet doesn't even sound good. best way to put it is like, like 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If you... Have no love? What does it say? Your clanging or clashing symbol. Now symbols are pretty loud, right? You can't miss them. Right? I mean, if you're deaf, even if you cannot hear at all, you can feel the sound from a clanging symbol, right? Or a clashing symbol. You hear it. It doesn't fit. It's grotesque. It'd be kind of like Ganel and I up here this morning and she's trying to play the song and I'm singing at the top of my lungs all the wrong notes. And everybody in church is doing what at this point? You're grimacing, aren't you? You're in pain. Your ears are hurting. Even if you are kind of tone deaf, you're like, that's not right. That is not even close. And I'm also on the wrong tempo. So she's like three measures ahead of me. And then before you know it, I'm like three measures ahead of her. Now some of you are probably saying, that's what you were this morning, Steve. <laughs> but that's a whole other issue, okay? I was trying. <laughs> Come back quickly, Jim and Lois. Uh, <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. But more importantly... It's useless, isn't it? It's distracting. It's it's horrifying. There's nothing good about it, is there? Do not be like... Verse 2, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. He's saying, listen, this is the classic epitome of... Of self righteousness. You give to the needy, and people have to see. People have to know. And again, it's just an illustration. Maybe that's not your problem because you don't even give to the needy. Well, that's a whole other issue. But he says, don't be like them. Don't draw attention to it. That's what the hypocrites do. Why? Because it's not, they're acting, and here's why it's hypocritical they're acting as if they're doing it because they what? love God, and secondarily because they're keeping the law. Right? But they're not. Not at all. They're doing it to be noticed and recognized. They're doing it because they want to be seen as, what? Righteous. They're doing it because they want to be seen as good. I don't know about you, but this is kind of painful to me already. This is very painful to me. Can I give you a couple examples? Personal examples? One of my big struggles, uh, it's testimony time. This is what I struggle with all the time. I struggle. Now, I'm not saying this so that y'all will change and do something different. I struggle. It's a battle for me. It always has been. It probably always will be. I really struggle when nobody compliments my messages. Now, sometimes people do, but that's not my point. My point is oftentimes nobody says anything. I struggle with that. Why should I struggle with that? You know why? Why do? Because I want to be noticed. I want to be recognized. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be, to use a more modern term, validated. Does that make sense? Does that kind of resonate with you at all in your lives? I find myself with that all the time. It's a war every Sunday I fight. Every single Sunday. There's never been a Sunday that I haven't fought this in my life. And when I was teaching before then, never been a day that went by that I didn't struggle with that afterwards. When I've counseled people, there's never been a day I didn't struggle with it after the counseling session was over. Not once. They probably, I, never, I, I probably never reached a point where I don't struggle with that. I want the horn to be played. I know that probably lowers you down in, 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 it lowers me down in your eyes. I'm okay with that, because <laughs> I am I, one who needs to be repentant as well. I want to be noticed. I want to be recognized. I don't want to be a nobody. I don't, want my, I don't want my life to be irrelevant. And so i got to try to figure out ways to make it more relevant. I've got to find out ways to get my, my, my preaching more recognized. And I feel that pull all the time. You know what I want to do? I want to play a trumpet. That's what I want to do. Now, let's not talk about Giving but I am giving, aren't I, of the scriptures? Are you needy with regard to the scriptures? We all are. So I guess in a way we could argue that I'm giving to the needy. I'm just as needy myself. But my point is, you know what? I kind of want to be recognized. That that does not mean you should recognize me afterwards. (laughs) Then you're feeding myself righteousness. I'm not saying that. I'm not hunting for anything here. I'm being honest, just being vulnerable. But what does Jesus say here? Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And what does he say? Truly, I say to you, they have reached their reward or received their reward. That's the second time he said that, didn't he? The first was in verse six. verse one, I'm sorry. Verse one, of chapter six. Then you will receive no reward from your fathers in heaven here. He said you've already received your reward twice. He said it. You think the people better sit up and start paying attention? The rewards already been given. It's merely a temporal award a reward. It's a reward being given to you by someone who has no reward. To give you realize that. It's, when you really think about it, it's really silly, isn't it? I mean, you know I like to run races. Wouldn't it not be silly, next month I'm running a marathon, wouldn't it be silly if I ran the marathon, I crossed the finish line, and somebody that's just a spectator somewhere walks out and says, Here's, here, here, I want to give you this reward, and he hands me whatever, a piece of paper. It has nothing to do about the race. He's not an official for the race. He has nothing to do with the race. He was just there watching. He didn't even know the race was happening that day. He just saw it was happening, so he stopped there. And he got there right as I crossed the finish line. He walks up to me and hands me a reward. What value is that reward? As my friend Ken would say, if I may quote you, Ken, that and four bucks will get you coffee at Starbucks. It's probably five now. In other words, that piece of paper that guy gave me is meaningless. He has no authority to give me a reward. He has no reward to give. In this case, it's even worse. Because the one giving you the reward is a co-condemned one. Right? doesn't make any sense for a co-condemned person to give you a reward. That's meaningless. It's empty. Or to use a more prime example, you're being led to the firing squad and another guy who's being led to the firing squad as he's leading you there He says, I want to give you your reward. And he hands you something. What's that in comparison to the guy who comes and gives you a pass so you don't have to be executed and instead you're set free? In the first case, you're still dead and so is he. Correct? So that's the reward you got. The one who is going to die with you gave you something that is meaningless because you're about to die in comparison to one who gives you a reward by setting you free so you will not die. And he stands in your place and dies for you. And That's what Jesus is talking about here. When you do these things, act these ways, to be seen by others, your co-condemned ones are the ones rewarding you. You've got your reward. and That's all you're going to get. Your only hope for a real reward is the one who will stand in your place, which is exactly where he's going. Instead, verse 3, and this is the instructional part, instead, but I, I, I'm sorry, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your may, your giving may be in secret. Now we got to understand what he's talking about here. Firstly, it's twofold. When he gives this positive instruction, negative, don't do this, right? As we saw in verse one and two, negative, don't do this. Three, but do this instead. Ultimately, we need to understand. Ultimately, natural man. Do you think natural man can do verse three? Unsaved man. Can an unsaved man actually do verse 3? No. It's impossible. If if we are lost, if we are condemned people, we cannot do what verse 3 talks about. Because if you remember, verse 2 says, to do this is to receive reward now. Right? There's either a reward now or a reward when? Then. Well, can... In its very basics, can a condemned man who is unrepentant, in rebellion, dead in his trespasses and sins, can he receive a reward then, in the future? No, he can't. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He has no hope. All he can do is receive his reward now. And so by definition, he has to get that reward now. And every unsaved person, one way or another, receives their rewards now well, maybe they'll try to do it quietly, but ultimately, when they're not being recognized, how do they start to respond? They're upset. Why? Because they deserve a reward. If nothing else, the most bizarre thing starts happening is that they reward themselves in their pride. It's even more bizarre than their arrogance. But he said, instead, when you give to the needy, do not left your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That is an impossibility, humanly speaking, naturally speaking. The only way in which that could take place and the idea of left-hand, right hand is not physically I'm giving my left hand so my right hand physically speaking doesn't know what, what's going on. It's not what it's talking about he's talking about something much more important than that when when your left hand is doing something and your right hand doesn't know about it the idea is the reason why the right hand doesn't know is because the right hand is busy what doing something else now it's just a picture your right hand's busy with something else so it doesn't recognize what the left hand is doing now we all know that that happens right Let me use this illustration. If I'm driving nails, I'm left-handed, so I'm holding the hammer in my left hand, and I got the nail down here, and I'm pounding away, I'm focused firstly in my left hand, right? Swinging the hammer, that's the primary focus, right? The secondary focus is upon what? The nail. And sometimes, the left hand forgets about the the right hand, or more specifically, the left hand forgets about the right thumb. And what happens when that happens? You hit the wrong nail, right? Because the left hand's focused on the hammer and the swing of the hammer and the head of the nail. My point is the idea is there is a, when my right hand is focused on something else, it doesn't know what's going on with the left hand type of thing. That's the argument. And when he's talking about something spiritual, however, When he says it should be done in secret, it's because there's something more important. Follow me so far? When the left hand's doing something, the right hand doesn't know about it because the right hand's all caught up in something much more important because ultimately, is it important that I take care of... The first word I said was ultimately. Ultimately, is what is important that I take care of the needy? Is that what's ultimately important? No, it is not. It is not. What's ultimately important? Bringing glory to God is what is important. So the right hand, the idea is, the right hand's caught up in what? Giving to the needy? Glory of God. As a result, the left hand doing something in secret is also doing it for the glory of God. So both hands are doing things for the glory of God. Now again, it's a picture. It's not, it's not physical. It's talking about spiritual. Jesus talking about spiritually. The left hand's caught up in this... This little thing, and it is a little thing, of taking care of this needy person for the glory of God. At the same time, the right hand is caught up in something that is for the glory of God. And so ultimately, it's not about the needy or about this other thing. It's about the glory of God. And that's exactly what chapter 5 said. So that your good works will glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the point of the left hand, right hand here. And what Jesus is driving towards is whatever it is you're doing, whatever your activity is that you're doing that you may very well call righteousness, guess what? You are in no position... And I am in no position to determine what is righteous or not. What is righteousness or not. We have no authority to make those determinations. Righteousness is all about, obviously it's not inconsistent with the Scriptures, but righteousness, see, righteousness must be consistent with the Scriptures, but unrighteousness can also be consistent with the Scriptures, can't it? I can can follow the Scriptures unrighteously, which is exactly what he's talking about here, which is the most common thing. But righteousness has as its goal, its motive, the very fuel that is in the engine of the activity that is going on is for the glory of God. Period. Period. Anything else is self-righteousness. If I'm doing what I'm doing, saying what I, what I am saying, thinking what I am thinking, cogitating on what I'm cogitating on, if it's not for the glory of God, it's self-righteousness. Pure and simple. And that's the trap we fall into all the time. I was telling Ganel on the way here, I've been thinking about, about how often when, when we talk to people who are, who are struggling with sin, we say, well, you've got to stop doing that and you've got to start doing this, right? And so we say that is wrong according to the Scriptures. You shouldn't do that, but you, the Scriptures say you should do this, so therefore you should be doing this. And somehow we think that that helps someone. But well, what did we just do? We took the person from Practicing unrighteous activity at its very core, right? The person was stealing, say for example. And we showed him Ephesians chapter 4 where he needs to stop stealing but needs to start working and giving. That's what it says in chapter 4, 26 or whatever it is. And we think because he stopped stealing and now he's working and giving that somehow now he's righteous. Because he was disobeying and now he's obeying. But in reality, he's obeying in an unrighteous manner. Because it's not about the glory of God. That's not his driving fuel by the Spirit. Quite to the contrary, it's something else. And therefore it's self-righteousness. And we all fall into that, don't we? We do something wrong, we feel guilty about it, maybe we even have a quasi-repentance and we rush off to the Scripture to see what we should do. Oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, and I got to do this. Okay, I'm going to start doing this and this and this. And we forget that I need a righteousness that's not my own. And the only response that's appropriate is for the what? The glory of God. And that's not a default, just because we follow the law. Exhibit A, the Pharisees. <laughs> Clearly, that's not the default. And then he goes on, again, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. not. And it, this is not a conflict between chapter 5 where it says let your, let your good works be seen by men. Here it says, seems to say, as we talked about last week, uh, let it be done in secret. What's he talking about? How do we fit that together? Again, the point is, what's the object? What's the focus? What's the goal? The secret he's talking about is so that people are not, and I can't control what other people do, but the, secret, the, the idea that he's talking about being done in secret is talking about the goal. Your goal is not to have people praise you. That's not the goal. They recognize you. What did Jesus say elsewhere? He said, you should, come, you should come after working a day as a slave out in the field, and you come in, and your responsibility is what? When you come in from the field for a day of hard work. You prepare the food and feed the master, right? Right? And then if somebody says, what? You did really well today. The response should be what? Jesus said, no, I only did what was required of me. Radical difference, isn't it? Because the glory is supposed to go to who? The Master. The honor, the praise, the glory, everything goes to the Master. You see, what we end up doing, if I may use an Old Testament illustration, what we end up doing... Too often is we end up being like Achan. God does something amazing and then we steal from him. It's just a few little things. What's the big deal, right? And I'll bury him underneath my tent. What's the big deal? Did Achan or did he not receive his reward in full at that point? And how'd that work out for him? Not good. Ananias and Sapphira, New Testament. It was just a little lie. For the purpose of what? Being seen by men. And they received their reward. And then they died. Did they not? They didn't get a chance to enjoy their reward. And they died. And that's the pattern. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. On the contrary as we do it for God's glory. And therefore in secret, not bringing praise or glory or recognition to ourselves. And the idea is because. Now this is where we got to be careful. Because again, we can't fall in the trap of saying, well, because he said we got to do it in secret, I got to really work hard at doing it in secret. Then it's just what a different type of self-righteousness. But we got to remember what he said in chapter 5 is for the purpose of bringing glory to God, praise and glory to God and then he says what, (laughs) as a result and your father who sees in secret will what reward you and that's talking about maybe here on this earth but most likely in glory and definitely in glory he will reward you in heaven and it will be in full and it's then when we are rewarded that we will recognize what you think Unlike any reward we receive on earth, in that day we will recognize how unworthy we are of any reward. Do you realize that? Because what we will recognize is the only way I could be here receiving a reward in glory is because Christ took on all my self-righteousness and all my rebellion. And all my vainglory. And all my thievery of God's glory. And he bore that to the cross. And he gave me his righteousness. And he brought me to repentance. And he gave me faith to believe. And he forgave me. And he grafted me into the vine. And he gave me and and continued to give me life. And He protected me. He sealed me. He gave me an inheritance that belonged to Him. He prepared a place for me. He returned for me. And you recognize the the word that threads all the way through every one of those statements I made and many more? What was the word? He. He. It's that recognition that someone who is saved, who has been rescued, who has been made alive, who has been given faith to believe, who has repented, because the Spirit's work in their life—it's that person who longs for the reward to go to Christ. It's that person who grieves when the reward comes to them from self-righteousness. It's that person who longs for Christ's glory to be shining forth in them. Even if there's a cost, as well as if there isn't. Why is that? Because He changes that person's life, that person's heart. He gives them a new heart. And their longing is no longer for themselves but for the one who saved them. And their longing is for others to know and be reminded of the one who loves them. Who saved them. Who is returning for them. Who stood in their place. Who gave them His righteousness. Beware. We're going to hit this beware again two more times. Beware. Beware. You're practicing your righteousness before other people. Do you, do you recognize in the word beware? If I may just go back to that, do you recognize the warning is pretty stark? You're in danger. The Bible tells us the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. We talk about saved as in we were saved. But the scriptures also talk about it, does talk about we're saved, but it also talks about will be saved. Will be. And when we divorce will be from were, we're in trouble. Because if he began the good work in us, he will continue to perfect it till the day of Jesus Christ. If we're truly saved, we will persevere to the end. And the reason why we will persevere is because actually, in reality, he is the one who's persevering in us and through us. We work our salvation with fear and trembling because it is he who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And He changes The call of the text is to repent primarily. The secondary call for those who are repentant ones is not to try harder and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is to look to the One who forgave you. To know the One who forgave you. To know the One who stood in your place. To know the One who went to the cross for you. To know the One who, who bore the wrath of God for you the one who gave you the faith to believe. Because when you know Him, you know what begins to happen? The rewards that anybody will want to give you. Because sometimes people do want to give you rewards, right? You will find that repugnant in a growing way. Rather than rejoicing because our boss recognizing Recognizes the hard work we did, we will find ourselves rejoicing what Christ has done. Does that make sense? What are you? What am I other than what God has made? That you at work could think through a problem and solve a problem nobody else could solve? Is that really you? Is that you? As God told Moses when he said, I can't talk, Moses said what? Or God said what? Who made your mouth? Right? Well, God did. So just because someone speaks well, what does that mean about them? God made their mouth. Just because you could do something great, feed the needy, whatever. Whatever. What difference does that make? Anything we are is because of God. And when the spirits at work in us, guess what starts to happen? We start to recognize that. And we start to give glory to who? If they're not going to, what am I going to do? If I'm in Christ, I'm going to find myself doing what? Giving praise to God who's in heaven. Giving glory to God who is in heaven. I wonder how you're, just if I use the illustration, if you're at work and the boss commends you for your hard work, I wonder what would happen if you said, hey, you know what? All glory to God. This is here because of Christ. This happened because God is at work in me. I wonder how they'd respond to that. Interesting, huh? Now, some people say, well, you can't really talk about that in, at my work. Really? Says who? Says who? Sounds like maybe a little bit of self righteousness already starting them up. The whole goal of our lives is that people will see and do what? Glorify God who is in heaven. That's the point of it all. Now, I don't know about you, but in this text, I kind of feel a need to repent. And remember Jesus. remember what he's done, what he's doing, what he's promised to do. And by faith, trust Him. Let him do what he's going to do. Let's pray. Lord help us. We hear the message in 61 through four, and we recognize that we, we don't just struggle occasionally with self-righteousness. We are self righteous. And it's really strange that people who have been given the righteousness of Christ would still be self righteous. It certainly makes sense that people who don't have the righteousness of Christ would be self righteous. Makes complete sense. But oh, that we who have tasted and seen that you are good still. Find ourselves living our lives as if we're better. Lord, we ask that you will work in our lives. Open our eyes to see. We are people, even saved people, who desperately need you and your righteousness. We desperately need your forgiveness. As we've said many, many times before, we bring nothing to the table but our sin and everything else you bring. Our righteousness, our forgiveness, our new hearts, our new lives. Everything is of you, from you, through you, to you. to you be glory forever. Amen. So glorify yourself in our lives this week. Help us to realize how self-righteous we are and how much we need to repent and turn to you. In your name I pray. Amen.